Hello, welcome to Stump, the Sedan's MCR podcast. My name is Guillaume Program, and my aim is to make the work class research done by graduate students at Sedan's College Oxford accessible to anyone and everyone without prior knowledge of the subject. This is the first of two episodes with my guest today, Farbod Ahlagi. The second episode will be available next week on all the usual platforms. Farbod is a fourth-year DPhil student in philosophy, working primarily in moral philosophy and metaphysics. Before Oxford, he completed his BA in philosophy at Reading and then did an MLIT in philosophy joint at St Andrews and Stirling, and then an MPhil in philosophy at Cambridge. He's been president both of the British Postgraduate Philosophy Association and the British Undergraduate Philosophy Association. So as he puts it himself, he cares quite a lot about philosophy and the community. He defines himself as a third culture kid, born in the UK from parents who were originally from Iran and then living in Portsmouth, Dubai, the UAE, Bahrain, Oman and the UK again. And so my first question is always about asking guests to introduce broadly the field they study in. And when I was preparing this podcast, I was debating whether that was useful in that case, because I was like, philosophy, that's not such a niche topic. But then I thought, you know what, the answer is actually not that obvious. So I'm going to ask you that question anyway. Why is it to study philosophy? What philosophy is, is a very difficult question to answer. Philosophical questions tend to arise in situations where you realize that most of our standard ways that we might go about trying to settle certain questions seem to be exhausted. So it seems like, you know, empirical investigation on its own is not going to help us resolve a certain kind of question. And just mere reflection on what we might think we already know isn't going to be enough either. And so we kind of confront this moment or this point where it's very difficult to see what to say. And that what's required is a certain kind of degree of clarity and precision and rigor that is kind of a hallmark of what good philosophy is trying to be, is to take a kind of question that is very hard to try to see how to answer and to kind of interrogate it in the most kind of clear and concise and rigorous way we can. And that will involve doing different things in different cases because philosophical questions are quite, you know, so um, diverse in kind. You can ask philosophical questions about particular subjects or disciplines, say in philosophy of science, but then you can have much broader kind of philosophical questions more generally, say in epistemology about what knowledge is or what justification is, or say in metaphysics about the nature of reality. You have a lot of research interests in the field (laughs) of philosophy. Could you present them perhaps starting with what you do for your thesis? My primary research interests have to do with the metaphysics of morality. So there what I'm doing is combining some interests of mine in a kind of sub-discipline of moral philosophy that is called metaethics. So metaethics asks questions about, basically about morality that go beyond what we might call first order ethical questions. So first order ethical questions will just be ones like, you know, are certain actions right or wrong or good or bad or permissible or impermissible and why? And then uh, kind of meta-ethical questions will ask questions about how to understand those claims I just gave you. So there'll be questions like the metaphysics of morality, like are there such things as more facts and properties and relations? Questions about the epistemology of morality. So questions like how we can come to know moral claims, kind of moral semantic 
questions like the meaning of moral terms and then moral psychological questions like, for example, whether or not moral judgments necessarily motivate people to do particular things. And in particular, the thesis is about kind of combining two kind of literatures that have been skirting around one another, but not kind of fully engaging with each other. And so that is that there are a wide range of questions in the, in the metaphysics of morality that are you know, very difficult that people have been asking and trying to answer for a long time. And then there's this other area of philosophy that has come to have the unfortunate name of meta-metaphysics. I quite like it because it sounds kind of funny, but it, that is just a, a perhaps unhelpful initially name for the subdiscipline of philosophy that just asks the kind of questions I just illustrated about ethics, but for metaphysics. So it asks how we should understand metaphysical questions and how, if at all, we ought try to answer them. And so for the thesis, what I'm interested in doing is firstly kind of engaging with and arguing against a range of views in the metaphysics of morality that have come to be called relaxed or quietist moral realism. So what I want to do is argue against those views. And then I want to kind of hone in on a bunch of questions we could ask about the metaphysics of morality itself more, more generally. The one thinker I immediately think of when you say moral philosophy and uh, thinking about moral facts is Kant. And I was wondering if he was at all some sort of relevant philosopher in your own work and in more generally whether there are philosophers, contemporary, not contemporary, that are strong influences in what you're doing right now? With respect to Kant in particular, the answer is probably that I don't think about Kant that much. So most of what I am doing now involves kind of engaging with the work of of a range of very well-known moral philosophers like Derek Parfit and Tim Scanlon, Ronald Dworkin, and someone also called Matthew Kramer, they are examples of these people um, that I mentioned. Now, some of them don't like the term or the label for different reasons, but of so-called relaxed or quietists, uh, especially they hate the quietist label. All of them are, are highly influential and have contributed in, in all sorts of important ways to disputes uh, across the board, some in, in normative ethics and then in political philosophy. And now in a way, kind of at different points in their careers, kind of turned to think about the metaphysics of morality and of ethics in ways that kind of are interestingly different to how people kind of standardly want to go about thinking about these questions. I am going to ask you about moral realism and what it is in more details and what the quiet sort of moral realism is. But we're going to come back to that later because that's not more complicated, but perhaps a bit more abstract to the listener who's not initiated in philosophy like me. And so just for now, we're going to stay on perhaps more concrete levels and examples of the research you do. First, starting with normative ethical question. For me, Normative ethical questions in which you're interested would be questions such as, can the ends ever justify the means, for instance? Am I right in thinking these, are, these sort of questions? And 
are they everyday situations in which we make normative ethical decisions without even perhaps knowing that we do? The answer to that latter question is absolutely. So normative ethics just is the, the subdiscipline of philosophy that asks these kind of general questions about, as I say, the moral rightness or wrongness, goodness or badness, permissibleness or impermissibility of various actions or motives or policies that we might engage in. Whenever you make a moral decision, you're making a moral decision that is in principle, you know, evaluable as a, a good or a bad decision that you've made. And these questions arise in everyday life all the time. So perhaps it will help to kind of say a little bit about how I ended up with my specific normative ethical interests, as far as I can tell. So I was bit, I've been a smoker for, for very many years. Uh, unfortunately, it's a... Um, a habit one can pick up at an early age in the Middle East. So I smoked for a very long time. Up until about a year or so ago, I haven't smoked now um, for quite some time, thankfully. Congratulations. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It wasn't easy, but we got there. So one day I kind of thought to myself, okay, look, you know, this smoking thing's really not so great. I feel unwell quite regularly. And I also became increasingly worried that, you know, oh, well, you know, what if something happens to me and, you know, it will affect other people uh, in my life and I, d I don't want that. And, you know, also I want to, selfishly, I want to live long enough to do as much philosophy as I can. So what's going on? And I thought, well, look, am I doing anything wrong by smoking, right? Am I doing something morally wrong by, by smoking? Not just say bad for me personally or prudentially, um, because that's pretty obvious. But one way you might answer that question is by thinking that, well, perhaps I have certain moral obligations to myself, and maybe I'm violating them. Now, I'm not convinced I have any moral obligations to myself, at least at first pass. So I wasn't convinced by that move. So I needed to ask myself, were there any other reasons why what I'm doing might be wrong? Well, the next question to ask was how, if at all, might it affect those people to whom I stand in particular kinds of relationships to that are morally salient in any way, like to my parents, or to my sister, or to my partner, things like that. And one thing I realized was that smoking has a certain kind of feature. And this is hardly a, a deep philosophical insight, but I noticed, of course, that smoking systematically was highly likely to lower my chances of being around for, you know, much longer in, in the long run. Smoking is actually just one of a set of types of actions, the systematic engagement of which over time is, is something I have good reason to believe is highly likely lowering my chances of fulfilling certain obligations I have to do things in the future. Because even if I don't die, I might become debilitatingly sick. And so I realized, okay, here's this interesting feature actions have. Some actions are ones that, you know, lower our chances of fulfilling obligations in the future, either single acts we can perform or particular types of acts. I realized that there wasn't much work really trying to address these questions on their own for their own sake. So a particular paper that, that I published is about whether or not there are any circumstances under which performing actions that lower your chances of fulfilling your obligations are morally wrong, as opposed to ones that increase your chances and things like that. And um, I argue in that paper that, that they are, but that they're wrong in a way that's called protanto. So protanto moral wrongness is moral wrongness that can in principle be outweighed. For example, a lot of people think lying is like that. So a standard case might be the axe murderer at the door, you know, looking for someone and it seems permissible for you to, to do that, to, to lie. So I think that whilst 
chance lowering actions are morally admissible, um, and they are they're pro tanto morally wrong, and that their wrongness could in principle be outweighed. And it's an interesting question further to kind of ask how and when. We're going to stay on that topic for a bit because I find it really fascinating, and I have a couple of more questions on that. Sure. First of all, in terms of future moral obligations, to come back to the very specific example of smoking, yeah. uh, to give a concrete example, could that be, for instance, that if you were to be, say, too sick or not be around, that would mean, for instance, not being able to take care of aging parents, or if mm-hmm. you were to have children in 10 years, not being able to ra- raise them properly? Is this this sort of things? Yeah, so there, there's a delicate issue here about what the moral obligation is that you're lowering the chances of fulfilling, right? Because in some cases, that might be really obvious. So in, in my paper, for example, I, I start with a, a really simple case that just says, you know, suppose you are morally, suppose you have a moral obligation to help your friend do something, they're in, they're in urgent need of help, right? And you have at least two ways that, that you can help them. You can either, you know, take a um, bus, you know, that is, let's say, the only the last bus that's going in that direction and there's no other buses in front of it it's a kind of clear lane and they're just going to take you to this place or you know you can take your car but you know that your car for example let's suppose is highly unreliable the vast majority of the time you take your car it breaks down and i think if you took the car you would do something that was morally wrong because you would be picking to do something that you know that you have good reason to believe at the very least will drastically lower your chances of fulfilling your obligation to your friend. Now, the reason I, I mentioned that this is the delicate issue is because the two cases you gave me are importantly disanalogous. So one is about children in the future, right? And one was about ailing parents. And one reason that these are different is that it's not obvious I am under any moral obligations yet with respect to any children were I to have any because they don't exist yet. And it's not obvious that there are difficult questions there. Whereas in the case of my parents, I do think that it's clear that, you know, at least at first pass, that I do have some obligation to take care of them in ailing age. And so that is an example. And is any of this aspect of research applicable to climate change? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. And it's a question that I've not allowed myself enough time really to think about. But I have a suspicion that it's not clear how it would, because issues about climate change are complicated by the fact that decisions that we make when we're dealing with climate change, not just affect those who live now, they actually will affect those who will exist in the future, but in two important senses. One, it will affect whoever happens to live in the future, but also some decisions that we make when we deal with climate change actually affects who is even going to exist in the future, right? So this is an example of the the non-identity problem, um, as it's sometimes called in moral philosophy. And that issue complicates things because unless I'm clearer on how to think about the ethics of these kinds of actions that help that in part determine who is even going to exist in the first place, it's not clear to me precisely yet how the things I'm thinking about will affect issues in climate change. To come back to a perhaps more abstract level and something you've discussed, you've you've said you're doing in your thesis, you told us about moral realism and that seemed to be an important concept in 
what you described was the main interest of your thesis. And you also talk about, is it quiet assumptions? Relaxed assumptions? Yeah, call them relaxed realists. I think that's the least offensive term to those who, who use it. Could, could you explain a bit more what moral mm-hmm. realism is and what this uh, relaxed <laughs> strength sure. seems to be? Let's understand moral realism to just be the view that there are kind of objective, mind-independent, true moral claims, like, you know, it's wrong to kind of torture babies for fun or things like that, clear cases that look, you know, those look like true claims, which are about moral facts and properties that really exist in the world. There's an important distinction between views that are called naturalist and non-naturalist forms of moral realism. So naturalist moral realism is the view that there are kind of objective mind-independent moral facts and properties, but that these facts and properties are somehow identical with or reducible to or kind of fully understandable in terms of natural facts and properties. And by natural facts and properties, um, for our purposes, let's just mean things that you could investigate empirically, at least in principles. Uh, Here's a simple form of moral naturalism. It will just say moral rightness is just kind of reducible to maximizing people's happiness. The property of rightness just is happiness maximization, something like that. And then um, there's non-naturalist moral realism. So non-naturalist moral realism, unsurprisingly now, is just the view that there are kind of objective mind-independent moral facts and properties, but that they are not reducible to, identical with, or fully explainable in terms of the natural world. And so on this view, the property of being morally right or being morally wrong, for example, is not fully understandable in terms of the natural world. There's something that admitting of the existence of these properties or relations kind of takes us beyond just a purely kind of what you might consider kind of scientific, naturalistic understanding of reality. And that view, as you might now not be surprised to hear, is often met with concerns that this sounds very odd. For example, to to make that a bit more concrete, so one really famous objection to that kind of view comes from uh, J.L. Mackey. Mackey's famous argument was sometimes called the queerness, now sometimes called strangeness or weirdness argument, that says, but look, those kinds of things are just too weird to be something that we could seriously think exists. That's a kind of standard response to the non-naturalists, just kind of say, look, what are you talking, you know, these seem just like totally weird things for us to admit exist. Why should we do that? Now, the reason I've explained this is it helps make sense of what these relaxed quiet, or quietest people are, are kind of interested in doing. And what they want to do, I think, um, and again, we're now in controversial territory, is to try to say that the objection I just gave you and other objections to the metaphysical claims that non-naturalists are committed to are not just not successful. It's not like they, you know, raise some consideration against their view, but actually all things considered, it doesn't work. Rather, it's that they don't even raise any worry whatsoever for non-naturalism. They're completely misguided. And one of the things that creates the diversity amongst these relaxed realists is the story that they tell about why these objections are confused. And that's importantly different to what non-naturalists tend to do, where they'll say, okay, I admit, you know, at first pass, I can see why it might seem weird to admit the existence of this non-natural stuff. 
but you know now let me tell you a, a sufficiently complicated sophisticated philosophical story as to why it's not a problem whereas you know the the kind of relaxed realist kind of line is to say these objections just don't even hit the mark at all they have they don't raise any worry whatsoever so relaxed moral realists are relaxed indeed in the literal sense of the word as i understand it they are literally just relaxed because they don't think these objections raise any worry and i understand also that there's different levels of analysis there's metaphysics and there's a higher order level called meta metaphysics that you are also working in as as i understand it and obviously i'm not a specialist it's a fairly young academic area and that might perhaps suffer from the fact that it's not commonly accepted what falls under metaphysics and i was wondering if you agreed with that that there's no sort of entirely agreed upon definition of metaphysics and then what you do include in metaphysics to start with the first comment is about this issue about the age of the discipline i mean in terms of how young it is or has how long it has been called meta metaphysics it is a young discipline it's about 10 15 years maybe but actually the the history of of meta metaphysical reflection by which i just mean thinking about what metaphysics is and how if at all it will be done and specific assumptions we might make when we do metaphysics is very old i mean it's as old as as kind of metaphysics itself is in part because the first times anyone was doing any metaphysics necessarily involved some assumptions about what it was they were doing how they ought to do it how to understand particular notions that they were relying upon when trying to do metaphysics and in terms of what you mean minimally i think it's helpful at least to start with what a lot of people think metaphysics is you know a lot of people will understand metaphysics is just the kind of study of the nature of reality and obviously that in and of itself seems very unhelpful but to be a bit more specific you might think that metaphysics is is commonly understood as a combination of both what are sometimes called ontological questions so these are questions about what exists so these will be questions not just like the moral ontological ones we've been referring to like whether or not there's such a thing as moral rightness or moral goodness or whether there are moral properties but also questions like you know are there such things as abstract objects do numbers exist are there such things as tables or chairs that is composite objects or is the only things that exist just the stuff that makes them up and then metaphysical questions more broadly outside of just ontological questions about what exists are often questions about the nature of certain things in reality so these are questions like what is causation what is time and these kinds of questions commonly characterized by like what is x questions are often ones that are trying to ask about the kind of nature of certain bits of reality to the non specialist like me metaphysical questions already seem sort of <laughs> complicated enough as it is why do you think there's a need to go even further and think about the question what is metaphysics my view is not that you know we need to stop doing what we might call first order metaphysics and actually asking metaphysical questions until we've somehow settled meta metaphysical ones and the reason i i say that is because it's very easy to think that that's what someone like me might be saying 
but I'm not. And part of the reason I'm not doing that is because I'm actually myself highly skeptical about, you know, whether or not we're going to be able to satisfactorily answer a lot of these metaphysical questions. Rather, it's that I think that if we don't ask them, then a lot of really crucial questions when we get down into the kind of difficult details of what we're doing are going to remain opaque or unclear to us. So if we don't have these kinds of questions in the forefront of our mind about what it is we're doing when we do metaphysics and how, if at all, we ought to be trying to do it, then it's unclear that we understand what we're doing, firstly, ourselves. But secondly, it's not clear that we, are, we and our interlocutors, the people that we're discussing things with, have enough shared common ground to understand what each other are saying. But also because, and this is where it really intersects with the stuff that, that I do in the thesis, the plausibility of a lot of specific claims people make in metaphysics really do depend on certain assumptions in metaphysics. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. But Farber has a wide range of other research and philosophical interests that are very concrete and applied to our daily lives. These include, for instance, third culture kids and how they might help us understand questions about culture and identity. It's about transformative life experiences. Ed, he also tells us about medieval Islamic philosophy and about how the philosophy curricula in the UK should be more open towards philosophy from outside Europe and Anglo-Saxon country. It's absolutely fascinating and it's all next week on Stamp. So make sure you join us. In the meanwhile, thank you very much for having listened.